This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, Susan Robertson and Mario Novelli join me to review the year. And what a year it's been. COVID-19 has upended the world. But how has it upended research on education and globalization? Has it changed how we think about and teach comparative and international education? We should be actually thinking about what are the new kinds of pedagogical practices that we could begin to explore, experiment with, reflect on and so on, and carry those into the future. Susan Robertson is a professor of education in the Faculty of Education at the University of Cambridge. Clearly, there is a value of international conferences and there is a value of international engagement, but maybe we need to reflect on what we do and the ethics of that. Mario Novelli is professor in the political economy of education at the University of Sussex. They are co-editors of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education. Susan Robertson and Mario Novelli, welcome back to Fresh Ed. So thank you, Will. It's lovely to be here. End of 2020, and I'm sure we've got lots to talk today with you about. Yeah, thanks very much, Will, for the invitation. Very much looking forward to the conversation. And Mario, thank you so much for agreeing to join. This is your first time joining this end of year show. And for Susan, it's actually our fifth time doing this together. So quite an amazing achievement. And what a year to be thinking about. I mean, obviously, COVID-19 has just completely upended our world. And so I want to start, Susan, with sort of a large question. Has COVID-19 actually upended the very meaning of globalization? For sure it has, Will. Um, and perhaps before I get started and thinking about the journal that uh, Roger Dale and myself had edited for the last 19 years, um, actually welcoming Mario Novelli to join me as the co-editor for the journal, issue 20 um, coming around the corner for 2021, um, feels like a great achievement. Um, and then reflecting on what this year and looking forward has meant for our journal and thinking about globalisation, perhaps it's tempting to think that uh, somehow we're all, you know, the national is kind of big in our sights and globalisation isn't uh, significant or important anymore. But of course it is, and perhaps that's where some of that earlier thinking when globalisation loomed large in the 1980s and 90s and suddenly there was, you know, the, the... the the national had disappeared completely. Well, that hadn't happened. Essentially, the national had transformed itself. So I think our job is to really try and understand what's going on with those global processes. You know, for sure, we've seen uh, nationalisms writ large, even in relation to the pandemic, you know, nationalisms to do with the vaccine, who's got there first. But the big global tech firms, the global pharmaceutical firms, uh, the fact that globally education is in crisis. Um, I think there's something in the order of 850 million um, children out of school at the current time, COVID across 102 uh, countries uh, at least, and schools closed. So there's something profoundly global about that. I think that's right, Susan. And, you know, if we do go back to that early literature, I remember an interview you did very early on in, in the journal with Boaventura de Sousa Santos. When we talk about globalization, we should always do it in the plural and recognize that there are multiple processes of globalization. And over the years, I think we've seen different globalizations being dominant, neoliberalism being one of the main, but often conflated as the only form of globalization. And 
I think recently we've seen a new set of processes of globalization, the rise of the right across the world, Modi in India, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Trump, Johnson, and a whole wave which, although appearing as nationalisms, are also a global project with global funding and global backing. So I do think that it's about having a sophisticated understanding of globalization allows us to open up and engage with these conversations. Globalization hasn't gone away. What's so interesting is that in 2019, when we did this show with Susan and Roger, Roger was making a point about how we need to begin thinking about planetary as another level of analysis, um, rather than just local, national and global. And I thought he made a pretty good case on this particular, you know, this was mostly about climate change in many ways. But 2020 seems to have gone the complete opposite way, where all of a sudden we need to really say, you know, there's this globalizing force that might be microscopic or, you know, genetic. Um, and it sort of, to me, it just sort of revealed a different, as you said, Mario, globalizations, a different type of globalization that's happening, perhaps didn't give enough focus on or credit to in 2019. But now in 2020, we can't take our eyes off it. I had a the opportunity to be on a panel recently and to introduce uh, Bob Ventura de Souza Santos and his definition of globalization I've always found incredibly helpful um, and it does speak to what Mario was then just uh, talking about um, things start in particular places they have to um, and they spread out and they uh, they decide and define any local as both rival and as potentially kind of insignificant um, the pandemic hasn't been insignificant at all. Um, the virus essentially uh, tells you something about um, uh, how these things spread, uh, everything to do with globalisation, uh, global cities, uh, movements, cosmopolitan classes. Uh, mm. Those are the interesting kind of elements, it seems to me, that have actually uh, meant that the virus has actually rapidly moved around global space. Can I just comment on the planetary? Um, because sure. poss possibly here too, what we see is, you know, projects, China's, for example, trying to put things up onto the moon, um, you know, pushing into deep outer space. You, you see, you know, um, efforts to privatise space travel. Um, so maybe uh, that's some of the element of what Roger's perhaps talking about. But some of the, these things feel to me either to be either vanity projects um, in the case of Bozus or in, in other cases to do with, um, you know, China and um, outer space and so on, you know, kind of an assertion of a certain kind of um, super power nationalism you know i noted for instance the uh, russia has actually uh, named their vaccine for covid-19 um sputnik b so you know now this resurgence of a certain kind of nationalism that actually does have planetary consequences not just climate change but actually um a rush to outer space yeah and uh, you know th thinking about uh, again kind of when we were discussing these definitional issues one of the things that kept cropping up in the uh, in the globalization literature was about this issue of those problems that could not be addressed at the national scale you know hiv being one clearly climate change and you know itself the pandemic uh, although we've got all of these kind of vaccine nationalism as 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 you called it 
ultimately, if everybody is not vaccinated, nobody is safe. So there will be this process of kind of returning to these issues around the tension between nationalism and collectivism and responsibility. So that will be an interesting, again, debate to be followed over the coming period. Yeah, and I I wonder how it's going to play out, particularly with these vaccines that have been overwhelmingly bought by rich countries. And the global south has basically been excluded from you know, a large percentage of vaccines that will be available both this year and particularly in 2021. So I think this issue of, you know, how do you get over the issue of vaccine nationalism? How do you actually build consensus? How do you address this global problem on a global scale is is sort of yet to be seen. I haven't seen much evidence that it's possible in 2020, sadly. I noticed uh, this morning, just listening to the radio, though, that uh, there is a big campaign going around vaccines and to uh, redistribute vaccines to uh, the low-income countries. And maybe what we could uh, learn from what's happened over the course of this year... um, you know, there have been amazing solidarities, community initiatives um, around even the streets that I live, you know, trying to care for people who might not uh, see anyone who needs something and so on. Now, if we could take what we've done quite well in many neighbourhoods and extend that out, not just to your neighbourhood, but to the neighbourhoods of the world. You know, if we've yeah. learned anything, that we're all in it together and unless we learn to work together, um, and perhaps, you know, even schools working in bubbles, for example, and yeah. I'd love to know what the word for bubble is in different languages around the world, <laughs> but it seems to be a dominant uh, a metaphor to describe keeping you safe in a in an institutional space where we still are keeping buildings open and learning happening and and so on mm. um, but yes we, we've got to be able to take something from this year not just the pain and the anguish but mm. actually all the things that we have managed to do and to to ensure that um, there is an element of responsibility and inclusion so Mario I want to bring you in here and ask about COVID-19, and did it reveal anything to you related to global capitalism? I I mean, we've talked a little bit about these big pharmaceutical companies and how, you know, making a lot of profit and tech companies, but has it revealed anything else to you about this globalizing phenomenon of capitalism? Well, I I think it's revealed a lot. I think that what COVID has done is it kind of intensifies or sharpens the focus on already existing inequalities and issues. You know, going back to the early days in March, I think that um, there was a few movie stars that uh, contracted COVID early on. And uh, I think in the press, it was saying, you know, COVID is doesn't um, determine itself by social class or geography. It goes everywhere. So it was almost like COVID was a great leveller. And actually, I think what we've seen over the last months is that COVID is actually an intensifier of the stratification that exists. We've already talked about the unequal distribution of vaccines. But it's also revealed, you know, racism and, uh, you know, the the police violence in the US that led to a massive rise of the Black Lives Matter movement that continues to this day, uh, which I think the the COVID um, phenomena intensified. And, you know, another thing that I think it's revealed um, and, uh, you know, we lost David Graeber this summer, a very good critical anthropologist and one of his last last books was uh, a book called uh, Bullshit Jobs, um, which talked about the way capitalism has the capacity to create 
a lot of useless jobs, uh, which um, many people are complicit in pretending are not useless. And I think that during this period, what was revealed was what is important and what is superfluous. Uh, and uh, a lot of kind of, you know, a lot of the stuff that's been commoditized around, you know, clapping the NHS and uh, supporting key workers, nevertheless reflected the fact that we do appreciate, and teachers included in that, you know, a recognition of what's important and others uh, that are not important. And I also think that, you know, during this period, unlike other recessions, it hits much more the poorest and most marginalised communities in terms of income. So, for example, universities, we moved online and for a large part, we've retained our salaries, we're working from home and we can carry on forward, right? But if you're in casualised positions, casualised jobs, it's very much more difficult to lock yourself away. So there is an uneven expression of that. And, you know, it's manifests itself in a range of ways in terms of like unions defending uh, their members to stay at home while others were going out. And I think tensions within the kind of left movements around that, you know, the kind of lockdown left versus those that argued that we should have a more kind of balanced understanding of the responses to COVID. And, you know, another contradiction which I continually reflect on is the fact that for decades, our vice chancellors have been pushing online learning digital technologies and our unions have resisted that now during this period we've had a total 360 degree turn we've got vice chancellors talking about the value of face-to-face -face learning and emotional support for our students and we've got unions that say you can do everything online perfectly well and we should carry on until the pandemic's <laughs> over and i think that what you'll see when the vaccines come through in the summer is a total 360 turn once again, where unions will return to a position of scepticism, quite rightly, and uh, VCs will be starting to push all the learning that we've had from the COVID crisis and we need to expand our online learning. So I think there are many of those kind of funny kind of contradictions that have emerged during this period. But do you think it's going to result in a move towards, you know, the owners of capital, towards the standpoint of the vice chancellors? You know, this now that we're all online and capable of having meetings and teaching online, even if the union switches, you know, 180 degrees in their position, we still probably will see a lot of online work from, particularly in university sectors going forward, which puts us closer to the sort of, you know, interests of the VCs. Yeah, that, and I, I absolutely agree. And I think that it's a, been a strategic error on the part of the union movement to focus too much on lockdown and stay at home and not enough on the medium and long term uh, strategy of the union to defend jobs, to defend public education. Uh, to challenge the big tech companies. And I think we're going to be paying the price uh, over the next years. Can I come in here? Because I think the elements, I think, of our activity in uh, education institutions, for example, meetings, which it, it, you can easily run them on Zoom. You don't have to hop in a car, for example. In my case, you know, go across the city and you know, it's both traffic and time and that kind of thing. So I think that one of the jobs I think we should be doing is you know, looking at 
what is it, you know, and for, let's say, climate change kind of purposes, what is it that we could actually do well using technologies? And it might be meetings and so on. Um, what bits of our teaching could we do, um, perhaps online, and which bits might we not do online and so on? So that what we, what we do is we actually uh, look at uh, the ways in which we're not just, you know, it's all or nothing. Um, so that's the, my kind of first thought. But at the same time, just coming back to the issue of um, you know, people working online and so on, it did reveal really interesting overlapping challenges. You know, for example, trying to run your class, but you're at home, you've got children. So mm. the ways in which schools, workplaces, childcare um, and so on, all of those overlapping sectors um, which almost depended upon each other to have their own sort of economy, political economy or cultural political economy. And when they all imploded in on each other, it really just did actually show the the complications that can begin to emerge in that regard. What about in terms of sort of racial and ethnic inequalities that COVID has revealed, not just simply some of these class issues that we've been talking about Um, And potentially, I think in what Susan just said, there is quite a lot of gender issues that sort of come out of there as well in terms of who is caring. But what about racial, ethnic, minority sort of inequalities that exist in society and have been, you know, made worse because of COVID? I think clearly what we're seeing is uh, high percentages of infections amongst uh, black and ethnic minority communities, which, you know, at least in part is rooted in the fact that they are doing precisely those face-to-face jobs that occupy the most difficult uh, working conditions, the cleaners, the people that get up in the mornings and clean offices before everybody gets up. That is precisely the kind of um, phenomena that, you know, this this virus has revealed. Because it's an issue, isn't it? I mean, we can't think about 2020 and not think about that comes on the back of um, quite a number of years of austerity. And it, it's odd, isn't it, really, um, having mm. gone through those years and the government saying there's actually no money there when suddenly, you know, billions mm. can be put on the table and some of it badly spent, I might add, and some of it, quite a lot of it, actually not going where it ought to actually go too quickly, it seems to me. You know, your mates were in there. Um, Mm. Contracts were not being properly put out to tender and so on. So degrees of corruption in there. But um, the consequences for those social groups who have um, borne the brunt of those years of austerity and in poor jobs and so on, and that's racialised. It's both class, Mm. race, class and race, um, absolutely, definitely. Um, Just um, reflecting a bit, uh, I realise I'm, I'm becoming a bit pessimistic these days. So I was just thinking about um, Susan's reflection on some of the positives. So um, in the middle of this lockdown, the first lockdown in uh, in June, I decided to do some interviews with uh, comrades in Turkey and or uh, active in the Turkish movement and, and also in Colombia. And uh, I interviewed um, a very prominent leader, uh, Ertuğrul Gürtçü, a Turkish uh, social movement leader who is in exile in Germany. And he was saying that the lockdown has just been wonderful for him because suddenly everything went online. And as an exile, suddenly he could go back to meetings with his old friends that would normally take face to face. You know, they would normally be going on face to face in Istanbul or Ankara at the headquarters, but they all moved online. And, you know, I found myself doing stuff 
in different geographies and entering either watching or participating that I hadn't done before. So, for example, next week I'm on a panel on 20 years of uh, education in emergencies with the Centre for Lebanese Studies based in, in, in Lebanon. Uh, I've attended pro-Palestinian uh, workshops uh, led in South Africa um, and I've been running a political economy uh, lecture series online since September every week with a range of speakers from around the world. And what's really amazing is that we organise these uh, breakout rooms and, you know, I pop into them and see who is in there. And you see people from India to Canada, you know, some four, eight o'clock in the morning, some nine o'clock at night attending these things. So I, I definitely feel like, uh, you know, as Susan was saying, that there are really some positives that we have to hold on to from this and to reproduce. Um, but we also have to be wary of some of the negatives that are going to penetrate our working lives and, and our culture uh, in many years to come that might have a more punitive nature. So, you know, I'm all for taking uh, the best out of crisis. But, you know, having read Naomi Klein's book, we also have to remember that crisis is often an opportunity for powerful, powerful actors to impose a lot of pretty nasty things on society from privatisation to authoritarian rule. And the ingredients in COVID are all there for those things, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, disaster capitalism is definitely happening before our eyes. Um, but I think you're right that, you know, being able to work online and connect with people all over the world, and particularly for me, the benefit or the value is that there's no travel. When, and then that is going to potentially have a big impact on the changing climate and the climate crisis, because we obviously do need to cut back on our travel as academics. Um, and don't need to travel to Lebanon to, to chair one panel when you can do that from your home on Zoom. So, But I do wonder, and maybe this is where I'm a bit pessimistic and skeptical, is when the vaccine is widely available and people begin to travel more, will academics, for instance, go back to traveling around the world to give keynotes and attend conferences you know, on a monthly basis in, you know, all over the world so they can have a nice holiday potentially. I mean, that's where I'm a bit skeptical of what these long, you know, long-term changes, will they actually stick? I hope not. I hope we find a, a different kind of balance. Um, mm -hmm. We ran a conference, and my colleague here, to uh, Mark Carrigan, called the Post-Pandemic University. We put a lot of thought into not just going online, but if we ran a different kind of format... Um, so in this case, it was posting um, blog posts, which were extended commentaries, which were basically your paper. Everyone was encouraged to read them. And when we had the conference, it it was fabulous. And like Mario said, people came in from all over the world, often, uh, let's say, colleagues, India, Pakistan, negotiating uh, access, visa access and things like that. So it could, to some extent, democratise who participated. But more importantly, it seems to me, it pushed us to rethink a format so you know and I would say you know often we get 15 to 20 minutes a very long flight um, very expensive if you're a junior um, academic for instance or even indeed a teacher you don't get to go to these things easily or if you do it's very very expensive so my, my sense is what we should be kind of doing really and this would go to schools what are the kind of things that we played around with and experimented with to actually rethink formats even? Now, 
we're in the education business and we should be actually thinking about what are the new kinds of pedagogical practices that we could begin to explore, experiment with, reflect on and so on and carry those into the future. So you know, if we do have, let's say, CIS conference and so on, which is where many of us might have met, what kinds of formats might um, go forward and into the future but in ways in which we're simply not just going from almost the metaphor I'm going to use is the blackboard to, uh, you know, the, the, the blackboard, which we w- worked on to, uh, you know, blackboard, which was the, you know, VLE, the, you know, space and so on. It just tended to reflect each other. So, can, and I think this is really, really important for education. How can we actually um, use the technology to engage in very different ways in which we we learn together. You know, reflecting on that a little, I mean, there's certainly a lot of travel that I was doing that I realised was totally unnecessary. So, for example, meetings in London for editorial boards and uh, association meetings and stuff, which we've moved online and they're perfectly unproblematic. Um, I do kind of feel like I don't want to give up on face-to-face human contact and you know having been one of the few in my uh, school that's been coming in every day to work since August I've realized that my mental health uh, is a lot better than some uh, precisely for that reason that I'm able to engage with people and have those kind of more day-to-day conversations this kind of thing so I think that you know clearly there is a value of international conferences and there is a value of international engagement but maybe we need to reflect on what we do and the ethics of that and uh, you know there's a friend of mine uh, Professor Aziz Chowdhury who you know is very has always been very conscious about the environment much better than many of us and what I was always impressed by him is that, you know, he was in Montreal and he would come to the UK. And when he did come for 10 days, he would start in Scotland and finish in Brighton and do virtually a session almost every single day. So if he did travel, he made use of it and he put in a range of things. And I think that's why the, you know, the idea that we turn up, travel halfway across the world to do a presentation for 20 minutes is unfair and totally unjust. But if we're going somewhere and we're doing sessions for junior scholars, we're supporting workshops, we're presenting, we're doing a lot of the community work that our field requires, then I think there is some justification in that. So I think we just need to kind of reflect on that. Um, But certainly, you know, I don't want to move my whole life online because I actually find it very difficult to do everything through Zoom. I just don't think that it can convey and build up the trust and the, the friendships and the networks that our community requires in order to flourish and hopefully to produce social change. I think COVID has really made us stop and think about a lot of our own practices and, and reflection is, is a big thing. And hopefully we do have a more complex understanding of what we're doing and make changes that are, you know, environmentally just, socially just, um, and figuring out why it is we like this social interaction and in what what way. But it made me think a lot about, you know, this idea of rethinking Um, our own practices, it also made me start rethinking some of the ideas in our field of, say, comparative international education. And one of the ideas is about policy borrowing and how you always need to contextualize particular policy when it sort of moves around the globe and then re-enters some, you know, local context. 
Um, and I mean, this idea was, of course, started by or perhaps best articulated by Michael Sadler in the early 1900s, where he says you can't take a, a plant in one country and then put it in another country and expect it to grow. But I guess COVID made me start rethinking this very idea of context and how important it is and something that I teach all of my students that you always have to start with context and history. Because it seems like with COVID, you know, there is a very clear policy and approach to control the virus or to get to zero, more or less, you know, to to not have the virus around. You have to control people's traveling. You have to control communities. And yet, you know, we see over and over again, many countries that try and manage it without doing those specific policies. And it's just impossible. And it's just going from one peak to the next. Um, and it made me start thinking, you know, am I too hard on a contextual policy borrowing? You know, and I, I just wonder, you know, are, you know, what, what, what does COVID in this sense say about our field and policy borrowing? I think uh, in this case, it says some interesting things about context and that contexts are um, perhaps uh, ideationally driven. Um, and the example I'm going to use here is Sweden. So Sweden took um, a, a view right at the beginning that it wouldn't... Um, impose anything on the Swedes. And in fact, it was one of the worst countries in these, certainly in Europe and amongst the Scandinavian countries. And so in this moment, context was kind of mobilised to matter, just as we see, you know, in England, the idea of, you know, well, liberalism has to flourish, doesn't it? You know, um, my rights, and certainly in the United States, my rights are more important than perhaps the rights of the collective. But I agree with you, Will. I mean, I think um, the, it, it, perhaps I'm turning it on its head, but uh, mobilising context matters in this particular case, um, in fact, actually can generate you know, um, outcomes if we look at the rates of death in the United States. I mean, this is unconscionable. You know, if you think of going into Vietnam and the body counts and so on, I mean, it, on the scale of what's going on in the United States at the moment, because the view is that, you know, your your individual rights, you know, um, and so on, your, you know, trump everything else, um, ends up, it seems to me, um, generating the outcomes that we, we, we don't actually want to see. Mm. So I guess the question is, uh, you know, it seems to me that, we might want to generalise some things um, across all nations. Dignity, respect, um, mm. the right to the vaccine would be a good example. And now I know some people don't want to. Uh, they feel that, in fact, the vaccine is actually being pushed by the pharmaceutical companies and it's simply another dodgy uh, bug in some in some way. But uh, I guess these are all conversations, aren't they? I mean, they're not absolutes. You can't always say... Con mm context always matters. Um, it'll matter in, in relation to what's going on, but uh, there, there might be elements of that context that we might want to think don't trump everything else. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you. I think that's a really interesting reflection. I mean, I do think context, history, demography have mattered in this. I don't think that, you know, there is there, there is an issue. The two countries that I'm closest to, Italy and the UK, have been particularly badly affected and continue to be particularly badly affected. And, you know, there are other countries that have done much better and there must be something about that that is also to do with the particularity. But I, I do agree that maybe... Um, there is something about holding on 
to generalizations there are commonalities but it's the question of whose commonality no it's always been about that no whose human rights yeah whose social justice who gets to define these um i've never wanted to give up on universalisms i always think that you know there are some common values and principles that we should hold on to and nurture and not give up on these big ideas of social transformation so i'm all for uh you know, a return to some of those uh, debates and, you know, and some of the materialities of those issues as well. So, Mario, I want to ask you a little bit about education aid. You know, in some ways, I've heard, you sure. know, in the past that people have complained and about all the negative things that education aid does to low and middle income countries, um, makes them dependent on, on global north countries, former colonial countries. There's been great books written about it. Um, and now we see some countries yeah. in the global north cutting their aid budgets. So, for example, the United Kingdom has done so lately. And so I wonder, you know, to, to rethink some of the truths that we might have in our field, could these reductions actually be good? Could COVID be producing a good outcome here because aid is being reduced? Or am I being, you know, a bit too cynical? Let's start with where this is coming from, yeah? And I think that, you know, what we've seen over the last year is an intensification of a process that's been going on for some time uh, in the UK. Uh, we've seen the absorption of Department for International Development, the UK's aid wing, uh, into the Foreign Office and a massive reduction in international development assistance. Right Now, I don't think we should be any under any illusions that this is not in the advantage and under the direction of the right in this country. It's being pushed by the Daily Mail. It's being pushed by, you know, this is Nigel Farage's wet dream. Yeah, It has been something they pushed. So we have to be clear that where that is coming from. On the other hand, um, I think that it's not about only about volume. It's also about the quality of that aid. And we have seen over that same period from the same actors, albeit that they might have been the coming from the right wing of the Labour Party during the Blair area, have attempted to redefine what constitutes international development assistance so that it was palatable for economic development of our own country, not the global south, and for our own security. And when we talk about security, it's about our security, not the security of poor, marginalised communities elsewhere. So there has been that battle. So, you know, in the, in the field that I work in on international development and education in conflict-affected contests, there has been that kind of binary, you know, we need more money, we need more money. And I've always asked the question of, well, money for what? You know, where is that money going? So I don't think that the design is to make things better, but it may be that we do, it forces a rethink of the way that aid is used. And, you know, I think that um, debates around, you know, taxation and national responsibility, they're all, they're, they're all good. But I don't think we should say that or think that there is a progressive process going on in the UK around the reduction of aid and that in the end it's going to strengthen the independence and national liberation of southern countries because that's not what it's about yeah it's about very different things it's about post-Brexit uh, reorganization of the British state it's about using development assistance to support trade to support new trade agreements and to support a resurgence of UK military 
activity around the world just in the middle of this pandemic when we're you know talking about health we've just increased massive just announced massive increases of military spending you know this is just crazy yeah i agree with mario on that one i think um the the aid industry has actually also propped up a um, a big research agenda hasn't it mario and some of that research agenda i think is a little bit suspect as well around you know the so-called big global challenges and i'm i'm not convinced that in fact if we looked at how much money has gone in through some of those projects that we really see anything very much different in terms of um social justice education yeah. justice and so mm. on yeah so mm. yeah yeah no no absolutely absolutely so you know 2020 obviously was the year of covid maybe 2021 will also be the year of covid i i don't really know at this point but mario what what are you thinking 2021 is going to bring in terms of research and ideas on education and international development globalization you know what might 2021 bring well i guess the first thing is we're going to see what the new normal (laughs) represents and there's going to be a battle over the new normal um you know, there are going to be questions thrown up about who is going to pay for the crisis. Uh, and, you know, there's definitely uh, going to be battle over that. Um, you know, as I, as we talked about earlier, I think, you know, there's going to be a real issue around who is getting vaccinated and who isn't and how that whole process is managed. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of kind of yeah, coming out of the crisis, but the legacies of those. And, you know, there, I think, you know, real battle of social forces in the classic kind of Robert Coxian idea. Uh, we'll see how those forces balance out and manifest themselves in different places. I mean, you know, things move in different directions. So, you know, we have seen a shift to the authoritarian right over recent years. But there are glimmers of hope in different places. Uh, And, you know, the return of Eve Morales to Bolivia, the failure of the attempted coup uh, there. You know, there are there are kind of uh, things that make me optimistic. Um, The defeat of Trump, albeit kind of, you know, I don't know whether we should have a great deal of faith in Joe Biden and uh, the Democrats. But, you know, I think the defeat of Trump in that election meant something to a lot of people, which was beyond actually the materiality of where the changes come, which I think was important. Who knows? Yeah, Mario, I could add in uh, across Brazil, Sao Paulo has just voted to, uh, to, and it's gone to the left. I agree with Mario, and maybe it's a very nice way to kind of square where we started, and particularly to do with the journal. Um, Because we did interview uh, Robert Cox and the as the journal started and who's the kind of an inter died more recently but an absolute uh, giant in terms of thinking about uh, IR because fundamentally thinking about globalization societies and education international relations is quite an important kind of um, element um, in there the bits of the social forces that Cox kind of talked about and the Gramscian kind of analysis that he advanced Nancy Fraser's often talked about a, a triple movement you know um, the mm-hmm. Polanyan double movement state to market and so on and she's proposed you know the the third leg of it which is to do with um, civil society and social movements and so on and um, 
there will be a struggle. Uh, there'll be arguments uh, around artificial intelligence, technology, children learning, all of those kinds of elements. Why do we need teachers? Why do we need to pay them so much? Um, and, and so on. But, you know, perhaps I do have a, some hope, some faith. <laughs> in fact, societies don't go forward in a, in a linear way. They're much more mm. spiky and bumpy and conflictual and so on. And um, it seems to me that uh, we almost need an, an, an alternative to notions of artificial intelligence, you know, perhaps, you know, authentic intelligence, thinking about ways in which we can uh, use what is that we've learnt over the last, um, and I'm not going to say this last year, what have we actually learned? since 2008 um, and the rise of uh, authoritarian populism, some of it sort of being defeated potentially, but um, not everywhere and it's not going to go quietly at all. Um, you know, Some of the big ed tech firms are bigger than governments and their budgets mm. and that's going to be really, really interesting to see whether in fact that governments can actually push those ed tech firms in, into taxation systems and so on. So I think government has got to also learn how to govern in ways in which uh, some governments, it seems to me, have lost the art of governing wisely. So let's see if we can actually look at examples around the world where we're seeing degrees of wisdom around governing and the social contract, and whether in fact that might also set up different agendas for education. Can we get children talking in classrooms around democracy? Can we get children in classrooms talking around climate change? Can we get children in classrooms talking about solidarity? And what kinds of curriculum and pedagogies in our classrooms, and I mean classrooms all over, schools to universities, where we try and bring and breathe some life into the third leg of Fraser's uh, triple movement. Well, Susan Robertson and Mario Novelli, thank you so much for joining the end of the year show, the year in review. Please stay safe and have a wonderful new year. And I look forward to talking to you in 2021. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Susan Robertson is a professor of education in the Faculty of Education at the University of Cambridge. Mario Novelli is professor in the Political Economy of Education at the University of Sussex. They are co-editors of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and Ing Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. This is Hung Zong's last show for Fresh Ed. She's leaving after nearly four years of work. She's helped grow this podcast into what it is today. Thank you, Hung, for your help and support, and best of luck in your future. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next year.